5. So it's Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin at verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One born to you will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her, own a in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Uh, it was eight years ago, and uh, we found ourselves in the middle of London. We didn't magically appear there, of course. We jumped on the train and we went up to town and we went to Borough Market and there we started a familiar trail. It begins in Borough Market. We, we give the children some money and they get some bread normally with olive oil on top. I'll stop salivating there and describing, but it's the lovely focaccia bread with, with garlic stuffed in and, and all that stuff. And then we, with our bread in our hands, um, with the oil on the outside of the bag, we start uh, and continue our walk on the South Bank and we go past the Globe and... Um, past the modern Tate and we pass over the Wobbly Bridge and then we're looking at St Paul's and we sing to ourselves, feed the birds, tuppence a bag and then we jump on the tube and then we pop up having rested our legs for a, a wee bit in Trafalgar Square and uh, then we uh, traverse through the, uh, the crowds of Trafalgar Square and look at the, uh, the artists and we look at the acrobats and whatnot. Uh, there's always a Yoda kind of, you know, <laughs> suspended by magic in mid-air. You seen that guy? And then we walk up the Mall, and we go and see Her Majesty at Buckingham Palace. Then we uh, find our way to Victoria and back home. But this time, as we walked up the Mall, there was a noticeable difference. There was loads of police, more than usual. A few more hundred people were up there as well. And the closer we got to Her Majesty's uh, London abode, the crowds were just enthralled by the main gates of Buckingham Palace. We, 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 uh, we're not used to such things as social distancing in that point in our lives eight years ago. Masks were no longer or not yet needed, should we say. But as we got through the crowds and as we looked uh, through the bars, they were looking at an announcement. Eight years ago, in about the middle of the year, about July, there was a, a gold filigree um, announcement. There was a frame about A2, A1 side, something like that, announcing that George had been born. Prince George's birth was to be celebrated and announced. And within 24 hours, you know what it's like, the media giants had got photos, official photos of this gorgeous little baby with a mum who looked like she had just been through a, uh, nothing untoward in her life. <laughs> she looked resplendent. And uh, there's this wonderful announcement that we wanted to see and read that Prince George had been born. A future king had arrived. Now Luke 
and wants to make a similar announcement. Not a future king, but the king of the whole world has arrived. And he does that by chapter 1 of Luke, down in verse 2, carefully researching, carefully listening to and recording in detail what eyewitnesses say that they heard Jesus speak and what they saw Jesus do. And that's the foundation of Luke's gospel and also the book of Acts that Luke wrote as well. The king has come. And Luke records the birth of Jesus, the adventure that Jesus begins, uh, the adventure of Christmas, so to speak. If you're part of Emmanuel Kids, or if you're looking at the superb resource by our friends at Faith and Kids, there's the adventure of Christmas that tells the story of the first Christmas and every Christmas since for those who place their hope in Jesus Christ. But Luke wants to say the new king has arrived. And so he says, I've been and I've researched chapter 1, verse 2. And I've recorded down for everyone to look at the evidence that the king has arrived. Notice though he doesn't arrive at Buckingham Palace. You know where he arrives if you're familiar with the Christmas story. But that's half the problem. We can be too familiar with it. Luke takes us by the hand. And if we had time to read the whole of chapter one, we would see, we would see two couples. Two couples whose lives are interwoven like a, like, like a cord or a rope. Luke takes us by the hand and he leads us into the lives of ordinary people. There's an old barren couple. There's a young couple who are not engaged, but they are pledged to be married. It's very serious. There's two encounters with two angels. Two angels who say, don't be afraid, because that's the appropriate response whenever you see an angel, is to fear for your life. Two babies whose names are given to them supernaturally from the heavens. There's John and there's Jesus. But for all the similarities you've got in the first chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke wants us to be in no doubt that the birth of Jesus is of uttermost importance. It's undeniably true in terms of history. And look at our passage, look at verses 26 down to verse 38. Three times in verses 28, verse 30, verse 35, the angel speaks to Mary. Three times Mary responds to the angel, to the angelic being. And what's the message that Mary hears? It can be summed up in a very simple sentence. The most high has become the most low. Here's the wonderful truth of Christmas that we've just sung about. The message is that God, the uncreated power who sustained and who created the whole cosmos, has become a baby. The most high has become the most low. That's the message that Mary heard, and it's the message that is the cornerstone of every Christmas service ever since. The message of the incarnation, that the most high has become the most low, and that God has given us the greatest gift we could ever long for, and the gift that will satisfy every longing of every human heart, and that's himself. God in Christ has given us himself. And I want us to think just about two things today. The greatest gift, the greatest gift that every Christmas service should speak about. Let's think about that very briefly, the greatest gift. Now, every longing and every human heart is met in Jesus Christ, not on eBay. But uh, every philosophy and every religion except Christianity contends with the central claim of Christmas. And that is the most high becomes the most low. 
ask a, a Muslim friend, ask a Jewish friend, and they will say for different reasons that the claims of Christianity are wrong. It's impossible. It would never happen that God the Most High would come most low. It's impossible that God would limit himself, said our Muslim friend or our Jewish friend. It's against their foundational belief. God is too great, he's too high, he's too majestic to stoop so low, to condescend so low. A Muslim friend and a Jewish friend would disagree. But so would a humanistic friend. So would someone who would say that Christianity is wrong, that the God, if there's such a being, even exists, why would he become so central? That's a, against a relational belief that a humanistic friend would have. I object to Christ becoming so central. I object to Christians who want to put Christ at the centre of Christmas. Let's call it Xmas. Let's call it the festive season. That's a, a response to a humanistic friend who says Christians, they just want to, make, they want to ruin Christmas by putting Christ at the centre of it. But Christianity says, no, no, no. There is no Christmas without Christ. Christianity is absolutely passionate because the Bible says so, that Christ is the heartbeat of Christmas. The most high became the most low. And this passage tells us why that is such a great, true historical claim. If you deny the, the incarnation that the most high becomes the most low, you diminish the greatness of God. You remove something of his splendour and majesty and might. And this passage wants to teach us again that the greatness of God is far greater than we can ever imagine. It's the first thing that Mary grasps as the angel comes and speaks to her three times. The most high has become the most low. It's a bit like secret millionaire. You know secret millionaire when you have someone who's made an absolute packet, a man or a woman, and they dress up and they put themselves in their clothes and uh, the experience of everyday life. Perhaps they become and uh, they look like a homeless person. And then they, uh, at, at the end of the programme, they kind of take off the mask like Tom Cruise does in every Mission Impossible film. And uh, they reveal that actually they are someone of splendour and might, someone who's made it, someone who is uh, majestic, you could say. We all instinctively know this truth, don't we? That the greater person, by definition, is great because they enter into the lesser. And the lesser is lesser because they cannot enter into the greater a homeless person would be turned away if they went into a millionaire's club. But a millionaire's, a millionaire could just walk straight into Pall Mall or into Park Lane. And the central claim of Christianity is the sign of God's greatness is that he became lesser. That does not diminish his glory, but actually that's part of his glorious nature. God became human. But that's not all that Mary sees or hears. It's not just about the greatness of God, the incarnation. It also tells us something profound about ourselves. It's a message of our deep need, our deep sinfulness. Now, I can see a few teenagers, a few teenage boys. I won't look at any of you because this illustration is just for you. When I was a teenager, I received some gifts that told me, I'll, I'll just close my eyes so I won't look at any one of you. When I was a teenager, I received some gifts and they were on a theme. And I hope you never experienced what I experienced as a teenager. I received some uh, aftershave, and I received some deodorant, and I received some shower gel, and I received a manicure set. Now, you may have one Christmas where you get one of those things, but if you have one Christmas or a birthday even where you get all of those things, what do you think your friends are trying to tell you? 
this gift is not just for you, this gift is for our benefit as well. Because Houston, we have a problem. It's not just human that smells like B.O. It's you. And unless you have these gifts, and unless you take some great care in your uh, being and person, then it's going to affect all of our Christmases. So enjoy the gifts and get in the shower. Now look, it's not just for you a gift like that, I was being told, age 14, 15, something like that. It's for everybody. There's a great problem that you're unaware of, and it's hygiene. As a teenage boy or a teenage girl, you would have sorted that out already. What's Mary being told? In the words from the angel, the words from the messenger, we're in great trouble, and there's nothing we can do about it. Unless there's an intervention, unless there's a rescuer, unless God does something, we will remain in our state and in our need. Earlier this week, I had an interview with Matt Hancock. Matt Hancock was the ex-health secretary that did a lot in COVID. He was seen on a lot of screens and a lot of times and said PPE a lot of times as well. Sadly, something happened in his life. He made a bad decision. And uh, this is what he said as he looks back on something that's changed every relationship he's ever known. He said, I've blown up every part of my life and I've let everybody down. Now we can listen to those words knowing something of his story and say, well, you deserve what's happened to you. But actually, that's a great definition of what all of us do. All of us have blown up our lives. All of us have a great capacity to ruin every relationship that we're in. And it's not just on a horizontal level. The Bible says we've not loved God with our whole heart. We've not loved him with our soul, mind and strength. So every relationship vertically, we've ruined the one, the only one that matters between ourselves and between our maker. But also our sin, our selfishness, our conceitedness, our self-centeredness ruins every relationship horizontally as well. We've blown up every part of our lives. But then Mary hears these words, verse 33 excuse me, verse 30 to 33. The messenger says, his name will be Jesus, which means saviour. It literally means God will rescue. Then we read on in verse 32. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. George's birth was to be celebrated. But this reign is eternal. This reign is forever. God's forever king is coming from heaven to earth, not just to establish his rule and reign, but he's coming on a rescue mission. That although we have a great capacity to blow up our lives, that we don't love God or honour him in any way that we should, God in his grace has come on a rescue mission to save us. That's the greatest gift that we see. How sweet it is to think of that first Christmas with this cosy baby. How sweet it is to see and hear those um, lovely, well-orchestrated animals looking in on this babe. But do you know what this means? God became a baby to rescue us from ourselves. He emptied himself of his power. He had emptied himself eventually of his very life. God came down. That's the greatest gift. The most high became the most low. That means the condition that we find ourselves in, that the Bible calls sin, our utter rebellion against God and his loving rules and ways. That means we're in such a state 
that this is the only rescuer that can save us. We cannot save ourselves. And so God graciously sends his son. It's the greatest gift. It's what Christmas is all about. And how does Mary respond? She responds in three ways. It's the greatest gift, but also it's the gift that needs to be received. There's three words. You can see them on the screen. I want us to think about three words that the gift needs to be received. For every Christian, Mary received it in three ways at the first Christmas. And even if you're a Christian this morning, these three words are to be applied to our life on a daily basis as well. What do I mean? Look at the rational way that Mary receives the gift. Verse 29 of chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel. The angel says, greetings. I want to say that in a Scouse accent, but I don't know why. The angel said, greetings. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. It's kind of a comical way that Mary has spoken to. What kind of greeting, what way did this majestic angel speak to her? And literally what it's saying is is Mary is weighing, It's it's a word of accountancy. Mary is reckoning, Mary is pondering, Mary is figuring out. Mary has not left her brain at the door, so to speak. She's saying, what is happening in my experience? What's just happened to me? Who is this being? Who is this person? How do I account for what's going on? This is not an everyday experience in my life. Is this real? Is this a hallucination? Is this a dream? What is going on? That's what Mary is wrestling with in her rational mind. Now you speak to a friend, you invite them to one of our Christmas services and we're looking at angels appearing to Joseph or to the the angelic host appearing to the shepherds or, or a similar passage where the angel is appearing to Mary and you say, oh come on. No thinking person, as a Christian or a non-Christian, can believe in angels. No one can believe in angels. The only way to even talk about an angel is if you turn your brain off and just think, that's a happy thought, that's a nice thing to give you comfort. You might even be a Christian and say, actually, this is part of the Bible that I struggle to believe in. But uh, I don't need to reason, I just believe that part. I don't need to think about it. That's not what you see Mary doing. Mary is thinking. Mary is thoughtful. Mary is rational. Mary is reasonable. She didn't sit there and say, wow, it's an angel. She's saying, verse 29, what is going on? She's using her God-given brain to process what is an extraordinary and a unique encounter. She reacts just the way you and I should every single day. We're reading our Bibles. What is God saying? What's he doing in my life? Is he there? God, I don't understand. You might have great problems with the virgin birth, but uh, a friend of the church, Glenn Scrivener, puts it this way. Christians, well, Christians do believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists, you believe in the virgin birth of the universe. So choose your miracle. Very helpful statement. You may struggle to believe in the virgin birth. You may struggle to believe that God exists at all. But you are making a faith statement by saying, if God did not create the world, then who did? And you're choosing to believe in a virgin creation rather than a virgin birth. Mary, like every Christian, is a thinking person. And verse 29, she's thinking, what does this mean? What's happening? But that's not all. Mary's not just thinking, she's also being sincere. Verse 34. 
how will this be since I'm a virgin? Basically saying, God, I don't understand. Gabriel, I don't understand how this is going to happen. She's thinking out loud. She's processing her deep emotions. She's not just accepting. She's thinking, I don't understand. And she's willing to admit how she's feeling. She's struggling. She's weak. She's got uh, doubts. She's got great fears. How is this going to be? This is a, a sentence of sincerity. I don't understand what you're saying and the implications for my life are just vast. You may be here this morning, perhaps for the first time, and you're thinking, I don't know if I can believe the Christian message. Well, if that's you, I'd love to give you one of these books. Uh, Is Christmas Unbelievable? It's a very helpful modern short book from uh, Rebecca McLaughlin that I've read, and it looks at some of the big problems that people have with the Christian faith at Christmas time especially. If you don't want to take it for yourself, why not take it and give it to a friend? It's a super read. But Mary had lots of intellectual questions, but she's a picture of a person who's rational, who's sincere, who's thoughtful, who's trying to figure out and calculate what is happening. But look at where she takes her doubts. She doesn't just keep them to herself, she takes them to God. And she says, I do not understand what's happening. She brings them sincerely, honestly, humbly. How will this be? It's not an issue of faithlessness for Mary, but it is an issue of struggle and uh, wrestling that she's trying to figure out. How will God do what he said he will do? See, a Christian is somebody who's a rational person. Christians are always sincere. They figure out, they process the things that they're wrestling with, but they always do it at the foot of the cross. They always do it before a God who hears and who answers questions and prayers. Look, thirdly, that third word, submission. Mary submits down in verse 38, this famous sentence. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you said. Now realise, please, what Mary is saying here. It's a short sentence with huge meaning behind it. When Mary says, may it be to me as you have said, Mary is saying, may I be disgraced, may I be scoffed at, may I be looked down upon. If that's what you want, then I will accept your ways. And that is a remarkable statement. Here we are in a traditional culture of the first century. She was not engaged, she was betrothed. That has legal implications. She wouldn't have been left together with her husband for a year they wouldn't have been able to be you know without any chaperones for a year she would have been disgraced to have this broken off she knew she would be ostracized from her family she knew she would be ostracized from her friends she would knew that she would probably lose Joseph she didn't know at this point that God graciously would send an angel to Joseph as well to speak to him so it's shame it's scandal it would have been trending on Twitter before you could say the end of the sentence. But Mary says, may it be to me as you have said. Mary would have been on the lip of poverty all her life. She would have been shunned, she would have been outcast, she would have experienced all that you can imagine she would experience by losing her husband. And what she's saying, verse 38, no may it be. There's a contentment to this rational, sincere lady 
who is very central to the first Christmas. She's not saying with a kind of an inane grin. There's no joy in her experience at this point, if you notice. The joy comes when the angel says, go and see Elizabeth. And then Mary bursts into song a little bit later in verse 46. Then she said, my spirit doth rejoice, says in the old King James. My soul magnifies the Lord. But that's later on. That's not at this point. Here, there's rational, then sincere, and there's great submission. Do you see those states of mind that she experiences she's filled with doubts in verse 29 and yet she thinks it through she's filled with fear and yet she is sincere in verse 34 and she finally submits to God herself in verse 38 no matter what the cost she puts God first I see the evidence I see what's going on and I give myself completely to you it's a remarkable statement See, most people don't become Christians with a guiding light or a a bolt to the blue. Most people become Christians in a very gradual, normal way. But it's the adventure of the first Christmas. It's the adventure of faith that God reveals himself to us so often through his word. There's always stages. There's always struggles. There's always questions. But eventually there's joy. There was a missionary called John Patton. When he was 33 years old, he uh, got on a boat and he went and journeyed to the uh, Pacific Islands of the New Hebrides. Within four months, he had dug two graves, one for his wife and one for his child, losing both of them to fever. He married again and he worked hard telling people about Jesus for a further 41 years. He lived in constant fear for his own life because every islander was a cannibal. And he records this in his diary. Whatever trials have befallen me in my earthly pilgrimage, I have never had the trial of doubting that perhaps, after all, Jesus had made some mistake. No. My blessed Lord Jesus makes no mistakes. When we see all his meaning, we shall then understand what now we can only trustfully believe that all is well. What's best for us, best for the cause most dear to us, best for the good of others and for the glory of God. John Patton had learnt the hardest lesson. He learnt the lesson that Mary learns in this passage and that's the message that we all struggle with, that God is God and we are not. So let me ask you a question. What area of your life are you finding it most hard to treat God as God? What area in your life are you finding that most difficult? Is it the area of parenting, that you've got a child who wants to leave the Christian faith? Is it a child that's making life really difficult for you and you're finding that hard? And you're saying, God, what are you doing? What about if it's a relationship you're in? Marriage is under a lot of pressure and you're feeling, God, where are you in the midst of this? Have I made a mistake? Have you made a mistake? What about finances and work and employment? It's just too difficult. The last two years, I'm just convinced I'm in the wrong job. God, I think you've made a mistake. At what point is it in your life that you're finding it most difficult for God to be God? To give up the rights that you think you have over your own life and to give complete control to him? Because our issue is we... 
we forget that we are always dependent on God. We want to live independently, but God's made us for utter dependence upon him. And this passage to close teaches us the simplest lesson. The adventure of Christmas teaches us to go to God, to tell him when we're confused, which is often, and he will always show you the way. It will require patience, it will require prayer, it will require faith. But for those of us that are Christians this morning, here's the advanced lesson, verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, says Mary. May it be to me as you have said. Could you say something like that? Whether it's going out in faith, whether it's a big decision, whether it's something that's hard that you receive from a God who loves us and who disciplines us, who bruises us before he blesses us, as I read this week. Here's the advanced lesson that Mary wants us to hear, I think. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Let's pray.